podcast. Enjoy the show. Uh, hello and welcome back to the Movie Bar Podcast, the average movie podcast for average movie fans by average movie fans. The bar is now open. Welcome to episode 61. I am your host, John. I'm Justin. And I'm Kyle. Kyle, why do you always look like you're like held against your will to be here? Smile. We're on YouTube now. Um. <laughs> okay, turn your video back on, Kyle. That's a good one. You won. You want to see my tooth? Yeah. All right, Justin, do you have anything for has Kyle seen it? No. 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 Yeah, I don't either. We might share. This might be a collapsible segment. Unless we have something. So, any big news stories, new trailers we saw? Saw the trailer for Craven the Hunter, the Red Band trailer. Yeah. They've done him dirty. Like, uh, he looks great. He, like, I like where they're going with it, but it's not. Craven the Hunter. Yeah. So, I don't know. That's a Marvel property, correct? Yeah, but it's a Sony movie. It's a Spider-Man villain origin story. Okay. Like Morbius. Yes. Essentially, they Morbius them. Joy. Which sucks. Um, Um, Not bueno. Not bueno? So, a a, uh, friend of mine texted me this afternoon and she said, uh, have you ever seen this movie, uh, Bo has fears or something? Bo is afraid. Bo is afraid, yes. No. And I was like, no, I haven't. So I checked out the trailer. That looks pretty interesting. Kyle, have you seen that yet? Uh, no, not yet. It looks interesting. Uh, so. You would probably hate it. I like Joaquin Phoenix. I like. Well, it's a three hour artsy movie, so. Oh. Yeah. Well, I would be willing to put money, you would not like it. Yeah, you seem pretty confident in that, so I'm going to have to watch it and let you know. He's going to say right. he likes it just to spite you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, until he goes, okay, let's do it on the podcast. And then you're going to ask him a question about what it was about, and he's going to sit there and just stare at you with a blank look on his face going, I have no idea. <laughs> Yeah, most likely. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, the trailer looks interesting. I'll check it out maybe someday. All right, let's get to our what we've watched this week. Kyle, start us off. I watched The Flash and then Twilight Zone, the movie. Oh, must be working now, right? Yeah. Justin, what have you watched? I actually watched a few movies. Um. I watched Shazam, Fury of the Gods. Mm-hmm. <sighs> That's what I'll say about that. Um, <laughs> I did watch Extraction 2. More about that later. And then I watched, of course, the Twilight Zone movie. I don't want to forget that. Um, but I watched Renfield. You finally watched it. 
Yes, I watched it today. What's it on? It's is it streaming? It's on Peacock. Peacock, okay. Um I had already given you my pick, so spoiler alert. There's next week. <laughs> Good. No. Yeah. Hopefully I remember that. I don't have to ask you. You won't but last. Did it live up to the hype that you were hoping it would? I think it was great. Yeah. Okay. I I, I loved it. I hated that movie. I loved it. Lots of gore, lots of ripping people's faces off. Yeah, Aquafina's awkward as I'll get out. Um, but I liked it. I liked Cage. Well, Evil Dead Rise is coming to HBO or Max this week on Friday, so I don't have to buy it before buying the Blu-ray, so we can all watch it there. If you need a Max, let me know, Justin. I have Max. Okay. I don't have to pay for it. That's why I have it. <clears throat> oh, okay. Good for you. I have a subscription to HBO through my company. I get HBO oh, okay. for free. Nice. I can blow that up. Well, let's see. I watched um, 2011's Inside Out. That's not the Disney movie. That's the Triple H plays a convict making pickles movie. I watched Hatchet 3 as part of their 10th anniversary screening. They did a like a Joe Bob style um, like a Joe Bob style where they cut in, in the movie with different stories with it was Adam Green, Will Barrett, and Robert Pennegraft. So it was cool to watch that again. I watched this movie, Breaking, which is based on a true story um, about a guy that loses his VA benefits and threatens to blow up a bank. I can relate, even though I haven't lost them yet. Um, Victor Crowley, I watched uh, Avengers Age of Ultron. Let's Be Cops. The Happy Time Murders, which I'll talk about in a bit, and Twilight Zone, the movie. So let's get into our picks of the week. Justin, we already know yours. Why don't you start us off? Yes, I went with Extraction 2. Back from the brink of death, Commando Tyler Rake, Rake embarks on a dangerous mission to save a ruthless gangster's imprisoned family. Uh, just released June 16, 2023, directed by Sam Hargrave. Um, I watched the first one a while ago when it came out. I thought it was great. The second one was just as good. Lots of action. Lots of killing. Get little Idris Elba in there. Um, and they're coming up with a third one. They're going to make a third one. So it was pretty, it was pretty, really good. I enjoyed that's, it. That's on Netflix, correct? Yeah. Chris Hemsworth. Yep. Okay. Kyle? Um, I chose The Flash. Uh, worlds collide when The Flash uses superpowers to travel back in time to change the events of the past. However, when he attempts to save his family, inadvertently he alters the future, and he becomes trapped in reality where General Zod has returned, threatening annihilation. With no other superheroes to turn to, The Flash looks to coax a very different Batman out of retirement and rescuing an imprisoned, um, imprisoned Kryptonian albeit not the one he's looking for. Um, it came out June 16th, and it's directed by Andy Musetti, and he also did the It movies and stuff. Um, but yeah, no, it was pretty fun. You know, it's not the best, not the worst, but I had a lot of fun with it. It's cool. Some cameos and stuff that are unexpected. But yeah, I liked it. More than Michael Keaton and Ben Affleck that we knew about from the trailer? Oh yeah, there's a there's a ton of random cameos. Not a ton, uh-huh. but like there's 
Uh, there's two crazy ones in my head, okay. in my mind. Okay, and I appreciate you guys both picking movies that came out on my birthday. I appreciate that. But I went a totally different direction, and my pick of the week is The Happy Time Murders. Detective Phil Phillips is a down-on-his-luck puppet who used to work for the Los Angeles Police Department. When two puppets from an old TV show wind up dead, Phil suspects something is afoot and rejoins the LAPD as a consultant. Reunited with Connie Edwards, his former human partner, the Pickering duo find themselves in a race against time to protect other former cast members before the killer strikes again. Originally released on August 24th, 2018, it was directed by Brian Henson. Have you guys seen this movie, Justin? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. This this movie's right up your alley. Yeah, no, pretty you know, funny. You have a love of puppets. Kyle, have you seen it? I have not. Oh. You should definitely, I think you'd like it. It's funny. Mm-hmm. So, all right, moving into our main topic, Twilight Zone, the movie. Rated PG, it has a runtime of one hour and 41 minutes and was released on June 24th, 1983. It was directed by John Landis, Steven Spielberg, George Miller, and Joe Dante. Screenplay, screenplay by John Landis, Rod Sterling. Richard Matheson, Jerome Bixby, George Clayton, Johnson. Um, narrated by Rod Sterling and Burgess Meredith. Distributed by Warner, Bo- Warner Bros. and Warner Bros. Pictures. And it's currently streaming on Canopy. The heck is that? I've never heard of that. It's, That's um, one, like a... It's a free one you can get through a library or a school. Oh. Oh. It actually has a lot of cool stuff on it. So I could get it. Learn something new. My wife could get it. Yeah, I could too. Um, so, the cast. <coughs> the cast. Prologue. Burgess Meredith played the narrator. Dan Aykroyd as the passenger and Albert Brooks as the car driver. That was neat. I didn't know Dan Aykroyd was in it before I started watching it. So, that was cool. And Albert Brooks. And the neat little surprise. Uh, time out. We have Vic Morrow as Bill Connor. Doug McGrath as Larry, Charles Hallahan as Ray. Here we go. Here's a long one. Kick the can. We got Scatman Crothers as Mr. Blue. Bill Quinn as Lee, Leo Conroy. Martin Garner as Mr. Weinstein. Selma Diamond as Mrs. Weinstein. Helen Shaw as Mrs. Dempsey. Mary Matheson as Miss Aggie. Peter Bracco as Mr. Mute. Priscilla Pointer as Miss Cox. Scott Neems as young Mr. Weinstein. Tony Fenmore, young Mrs. Weinstein. Evan Richards, young Mr. Aggie. Laura Mooney, young Miss Dempsey. Christopher Eisenman, young Mr. Mute. Richard Swingler, Mr. Gray Panther. Alan Hoffrecht as Mr. Conroy's son. And Cheryl Sucker as Mr. Conroy's daughter-in-law. In It's a Good Life, we have Kathleen Quinlan as Helen Foley, Jeremy Licht as Anthony, Kevin McCarthy as Uncle Walt, Patricia Berry as mother, William Schwalert as father, Nancy Cartwright as Ethel, Dick Miller as Walter Simpson, Jerry Curry as Sarah, Bill Mummy as Tim, Jeffrey Bannister as Charlie, and The Nightmare 20,000 Feet, John Lithgow as John Valentine, Abby Lane as, sir, as senior stewardess, uh, Donna Dixon as junior stewardess, John Dennis Johnson as a co-pilot, uh, Larry Cedar as gremlin, Charles Knapp as air marshal, Bro- 
Byron McFarland as the pilot announcement. And then in the epilogue, we have John Lithgow's the John Valentine again, and then Dan Aykroyd as the ambulance driver. There's something on the wing. <laughs> I didn't realize that was Nancy Cartwright. Didn't either. But, yep, Bart Simpson, there you go. Yeah. How about that? All star cast in this movie. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. So the film starts off a long, winding road, and you see driver Albert Brooks and his passenger, Dan Aykroyd, driving very late at night, singing the song, singing along to Cleden's Clearwater Revival's cover of Midnight Special on a cassette. I believe it was an 8-track. No, it was a cassette. It was a cassette. And, it was a cassette. And the song ends when the tape breaks. Um, so after playing Guess That Show Tune, they decide to talk about the scary games he finds amusing. He switches off the car's headlights, drives in the dark. After the passenger admits that he, after Dan admits that he's uncomfortable, the driver laughs it off and keeps, keeps the lights on. With no tape or radio, the pair play named that tune, uh, such songs as Sea Hunt, Hawaii 05, and eventually the classic theme to The Twilight Zone. The conversation turns to what episodes of the series they found most scary, such as Burgess Meredith in Time Enough at Last and other classics. And the driver, the passenger asks the driver, do you want to see something really scary? The driver obliges, reportedly pulls over, and the passenger reluctantly. turns. Reluctantly. Reluctantly, sorry. Was it reportedly? Um, we saw him do it. <laughs> the passenger turns his face away, then turns back around, having transformed into a monster, and attacks the driver. The scene then cuts outside the car in the familiar Twilight Zone opening theme music and the monologue spoken by Meredith. You unlock a door to the key of imagination beyond all other dimensions, a dimension of sound, a dimension of sight, dimension of mind. You are moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. And well, the they o- should have hired you. I know, right? I am available for voice work now. Um, the opening sequence to the original film is reminiscent of a horror blackout comedy skits featured in later episodes of Sterling's later anthology TV series, Night Gallery. So... What do you guys think of the opening? Kind of sets yeah. the tone the tone for the movie, yeah. It just I I don't know. I feel like it could have been more creative. Come on, man. I, I'm talking about eighty three, like this movie's older than all of us. Yeah. So ideas yeah. weren't exactly but they went like meta by mentioning Twilight Zone episodes and stuff. Yeah. And I don't know how the original Twilight Zone opened, but Maybe it was something along those lines. And I I know it was parodied by Adam Green and Joe Lynch during the Road to Fright Fest series where they use a lot of the outs, like outside scenes. And then when they go in the car, it would be them. But, and the same thing with the tape deck and listening to the song. So, but no, I thought interesting. And Dan Dan Aykroyd looks so young. Yeah. He was. Yeah, well, they both were, yeah. So, all right, our first story, time out. So this is the film's only original segment, uh, and it was the first. 
and is directed by John Landis. is loosely based on the original Twilight Zone episode, A Quality of Mercy, with the opening narration borrowing from What You Need and A Nice Place to Visit. Yeah, I get it. I'm not the best, but that kind of criticism isn't really necessary. <laughs> Damn Jake. The narrator starts with this monologue. You're about to meet an angry man, Mr. William Connor, who carries on his shoulder a chip the size of the national debt. It's a sour man, a lonely man, who is tired of waiting for the breaks that come to others, but never to him. Mr. William Connor, whose own blind hatred is about to catapult him into the darkest corner of the Twilight Zone. So now we got Bill Connor, played by Vic Morrow. Being an outspoken bigot, being an outspoken bigot who's bitter after being passed over for a promotion. Uh, he's drinking in a bar after work with his friends, and he starts making prejudiced remarks and racial slurs towards Jews, blacks, Asians, attracting the attention of a group of black men sitting near them who strongly resent his racist comments. Which, I mean, hopefully. Bill leaves the bar very angry, but when he walks outside, the supernatural tone begins. Yeah, I was a little lost at this point, I'll admit. Like, all of a sudden, I was just like, what the hell? And I was like, oh, yeah, watching the Twilight Zone. Gotta remember that. (laughs) He inexplicably proceeds to assume the racial ethnicities of people against whom he is always prejudiced. First, he finds himself in occupied France during World War II, spotted by a pair of SS officers patrolling the streets who see him as a Jewish man. A chase ensues around the city, and Bill is shot in his arm by one of the German officers. Never fun. Bill falls from the ledge of a building and abruptly finds himself in rural south during the 1940s. There, a group of Ku Klux Klansmen, including John Larroquette, yes, yes, there he was, sees him as an African-American whom they are about to lynch. Bill is scared and confused. Vehemently tells them he is white. Yeah, that's kind of funny. <laughs> you gotta admit, yeah. like, I'm, I'm white. What are you doing? Yeah. While trying to escape the Klansman, he suddenly finds himself in a jungle during the Vietnam War as a Vietnamese man is blown to bits by U.S. soldiers. Yeah. Instead of killing him, the grenade thrown by the soldier blasts him into occupied France again. There he is captured by Nazi soldiers and put into an enclosed railroad freight car along with other Jewish Holocaust prisoners. With no apparent possibility of redemption or rescue, Bill sees and uselessly screams for help to his friends from the bar who have come out to the parking lot and cannot hear his cries, nor see him or the train as it pulls away for to a concentration camp, thus leaving them to wonder about his whereabouts and the viewer to wonder about his fate. Yeah, this one kind of threw me for a loop, too. <laughs> <laughs> but then, like... Even like I did the notes last week for the sh- for the the show, and then I was like, "Oh, that sounds interesting." And then I forgot about it, and I'm like, "So wait a minute." He went from a bar into World War Two, which I don't think they were like the way they were in the movie. And then then he jumps off, and he's all of a sudden being accused of being black, and I'm just like, "Oh yes, yeah, Twilight Zone." So, but what did you guys think of that that first story? I definitely think this is the weakest of all of the segments. Yeah. Why um, is that? I will, you know, I feel like they're all trying to have meaning a little bit, and this one 
is very on the nose saying, don't be racist. Like, imagine, <laughs> the, I don't know. I, it just, I don't know. It just didn't feel that Twilight zone either, you know? I don't know. And, like, it's weird to start with this one, and then, you know, going into the next one, it's just yeah. a very drastic change of tone. Well, I mean, that's kind of what it's supposed to be. It's yeah. It's a portal into another dimension. Yeah. Now, how many stories were there per episode? Does anybody know? I think there's only one. Just one. Just one story, so... This is you essentially know. four episodes. Yeah. yeah. And... You know, definitely being the um, like the newest story that they came up with for the movie, I they could have done a little bit better. But I don't know. I think that it's kind of timely for us to watch it now. I think there's a lot of people who might need to watch this segment and kind of maybe sit there and go, hmm, yeah, hmm. Re- reassess their life decisions, you know, just and choices. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's um, fair. Hmm. And so this is the one where the people got killed. Yes, the tragic accident that happened on scene when a helicopter lowered too low and took off Vic Morrow's head. Um, a tragedy, of course. Surprised they even kept it in the movie. Nowadays, that would be completely scrapped and rewritten and recast and maybe even taken out of the movie completely. Or probably just not get that movie made. <laughs> <laughs> Depending I don't on know. how far along we, we have are. to wait Depends until we see Rust. Yeah, aren't they in the process of refilming Rust now or reshooting? Yeah, that's a little bit. I mean, this was we're talking helicopter took a guy's head off, and there were kids, and that's a little bit more extreme than somebody forgot to change the bullet in the gun and the person gets shot by accident. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> little bit. Uh, a little yeah. bit different of uh, production value there, you know. But, I mean, Vic Morrow, talented actor. Yep. Uh, he did a hell of a job for what he was given, I guess. But, um, yeah. All right, let's move on to our second segment, Kick the Can. <laughs> so se- the second segment was directed by Steven Spielberg and is a remake of the episode Kick the Can from the show. Um, the narrator starts with this monologue. It is sometimes said that where there is no hope, there is no life. Case in point, the residents of Sunnyvale Rest Home, where hope is just a memory, but hope just checked into Sunnyvale, disguised as an elderly op- optimist who carries, it, carries his magic in a shiny tin can. So an old man named Mr. Bloom, played by Scatman Crothers, um, has just moved in a Sunnyvale retirement home, and upon his ar- arrival, he sits around kindly and smiles as he listens to the other elders, you know, reminisce about the joys they experienced in their youth. Uh, Mr. Bloom implies to them that just because they're old does not mean they cannot enjoy life anymore, and that feeling, and that feeling young and active has to do with your attitude, not just your age. Um, he tells them that later that night he will wake them and they can join in a game of kick the can. Um, they all agree besides Leo Conroy, played by Bill Quinn, who disagrees, saying that now that they're old, they cannot engage in physical activity and play the games they once did did as children. That night, Mr. Bloom gathers the rest of the optimistic residents outside and plays the game, during which they are transformed into childhood versions of themselves. Um, 
Although they are extremely ecstatic to be young again and engage in the activities they once enjoyed so long ago, they also realize that being young again means you not only experience the good aspects of life, but also the bad. They request to be old again, which Mr. Bloom grants to them. Leo Conroy witnesses one resident, Mr. Aggie, played by Murray Matheson, who had a role in five characters in search of an exit. Um, And then he remains young um, and says they want to go with him before the boy runs off. Um, Conroy realizes that he does not have to stop enjoying life because of his old age. However, Aggie tells Conroy that it is impossible. Um, The next morning, Mr. Bloom finds Conroy kicking a can around the yard after learning that being young at heart is what truly matters. He breaks the fourth wall by assuring the audience that he'll get it out, or he'll get it. The segment ends with Mr. Bloom leaving to another retirement home to spread his good-natured magic to other senior citizens. So what did you guys think of this one? This one was a little just too sappy and sentimental. Yeah. 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 Yeah, especially coming after the last one, which was really dark, yeah. which was unexpected. I mean, this 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 belonged as season filler. Yeah, this yeah. didn't belong in a movie. Yeah, especially you know, I can only imagine how many episodes were already out by the time they yeah. were doing this. So like, it's weird. It's very strange this one was picked, but it, it does make sense that Steven Spielberg would do this one, kind of. But it would have been cool to see him do something else. Yeah. Interesting take, you know, when you see all the old people running around playing hide and seek, kick the can, whatever you want to call it. And then all of a sudden it's like one comes around the corner and it's a little girl and you're like, okay. And, you know, when they're talking and she's like, well, I saw, I missed Haley's comet and I'm going to see it when I'm 80. And he's like, that's only two birthdays away. Do you want to see it as eight? Or do you want to see it as 80? And she's like, 80? Okay. And when, at, at the end, when they're all in the bedroom as old people, except for the one that's under the sheet and jumps out the window, I mean, hey, wouldn't you love to go back to be 8 No, I don't want to go through school again. You don't have to go through school. You're smart. You still have the brain. Doesn't matter. You're 8. Who's going to believe you? Well, you would just do really good, and then you could go to college by the time you're. No, nah, 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 no, don't deal with it again. <laughs> okay, I I'd go back to being eight. No bills. By the time you're eighteen again. Yeah, and you're guaranteed to live another fucking eighty years. Yeah, think about how hellish it is now. If I could have two brand new knees at the age of eight again, I mean, if I'm walking around like I do now at the age of eight, then, yeah, put me out of my misery, but bad back, bad knees, I'm good. I'd I'd, I'd give it all up. That's going to happen regardless. News for you. (laughs) I'd make a lot of decisions I didn't make nowadays, that's for sure. But I could be Hunter's best friend, protect him at school. So, Kyle, your thoughts on the second? Did you give your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's all right. Just, it's not, like, bad or anything. I just, I feel like I wasn't as invested. Yeah. It kind of wasn't what I was expecting. I was expecting more of the next two, and that's what I wanted. Yeah. So this, the first two, I was like, oh, this is, this is whatever. It kind of, st- like, you know, it started off slow with that first one. The second one, you got that Steven Spielberg touch. Yeah. And then... 
Now we're into segment three, It's a Good Life. The third segment, a remake of the episode called It's a Good Life, was directed by Joe Dante, and the opening narration is borrowed in part from Night Call. The narrator, the narrator starts with this monologue. Portrait of a woman in transit. Helen Foley, age 27, occupation, school teacher, school teacher. Up until now, the pattern of her life has been one of unrelenting sameness. Wanting for something different to happen, Helen Foley doesn't know it yet, but her waiting has just ended. So we see mild-mannered Helen Foley, um, the main character of the original series episode, Nightmare as a Child, uh, played by Kathleen Quinlan, is traveling to her new, jo- her new job and visits a rural bar for directions. While talking to the owner, Walter Paisley, played by the talented Dick Miller, who also worked with Joe Dante in Gremlins, she witnesses Anthony, a young boy, Jeremy Lick, Licked, Licked, playing an arcade game, who is being blamed by a pair of locals, one who actually portrayed Anthony in the original series, so that kind of shows how long it was in between. Hmm. Um, Bill Mummy, for accidentally causing interference on the TV by slapping the side of the video game machine. When one of the men pushes Anthony away from the game and pulls the plug, Helen comes to the boy's defense. But Anthony runs out of the restaurant. As Helen leaves, she backs up into the boy with her car in the parking lot, damaging his bicycle. And he then asks Helen if she will drive him home. They eventually arrive at Anthony's house, which is an immense home in the country. When Helen arrives, she meets Anthony's family, Uncle Walt, played by Kevin McCarthy, uh, his sister Ethel, Nancy Cartwright, and Anthony and Ethel's mother, Patricia Barry, from, uh, who starred in I Dream of Jeannie and The Chaser, and Father William Scallett, who played a role in Mr. Beavis. Beavis. Anthony's family seems overly welcoming, but Helen at first dismisses this. Anthony starts to show Helen around the home. While the family rifles through her purse and coat, there's a television in every room showing cartoons. She loses Anthony and comes to the room of his, of another sister, Sarah, played by Cherry Curry. Helen calls out to the girl who's in a wheelchair and watching television and displaying cartoons, but there is no response. Anthony appears and explains that Sarah has been in an accident and Helen is unable to see that the girl has no mouth. After the tour, Anthony announces that it's time for dinner, which consists of Anthony's favorite foods, including ice cream, candy apples, and hamburgers topped with peanut butter. Confused at first at how the family eats, Helen thinks that this is his birthday dinner for Anthony. Ethel complains of a prospect of another birthday. Anthony glares at her, and her plate flies off her hands onto the ground. Helen hurriedly attempts to leave, but Anthony urges Helen to stay and see Uncle Walt's hat trick. Helen is stunned to see the top hat has suddenly appeared on top of the television set, and Uncle Walt is very nervous about what could be in the hat, but he pulls out an ordinary rabbit out of it. The family members are relieved, but Anthony insists on more, and a large cartoonish rabbit springs from the hat. Helen screams, and Anthony orders it to go away. As she attempts to flee, she falls and spills the contents of her purse. 
And Anthony finds a note slipped in from one of the Fremont State and help us. Anthony is a monster. When the, the family points the fingers at Ethel, Anthony wheels her into the television set into cartoon land where she is then eaten by a large dragon-like cartoon character. Helen attempts to escape to have the door open up to a human eye. She closes it quickly only to see Anthony at the top of the stairs pleading her to stay as she is led back into the room to see Anthony with demon- with a demonic creature which she demands to disappear in, fit- in a fit of ir- irritation. Anthony makes the entire house disappear and his family with it, leaving himself and Helen literally nowhere. Anthony explains that since they were not happy living with him anymore, he has sent them all back to where they came from. Now at last, Anthony realizes horrific loneliness that comes with being omnipotent. 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 For once, and he expresses tremendous insecurity and Pain that sees within him instead of burying it. Helen offers to be Anthony's teacher and also his student. Together they will, or she says, they can find uses for his power that not even he dreamed of having. Having been confronted with the true end results of his reign of heart, of terror, Anthony welcomes Helen's offer and he makes the car reappear and both ride off towards a new home surrounded by Bright meadows filled with flowers. Okay, what did you guys think of this segment? This one was fun. I -hmm. like the effects of the creatures and stuff, and it was a good little mystery we were kind of figuring out, and I liked how the kid was kind of the bad guy in it. That was a good twist. Yeah, the, um, you know, the family, when they're all excited to see him, it's like, yeah, no kid. No parents are that excited to see their kid. And depends on how long they're gone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if it's only been a few hours, oh yeah, good you're back. It's about time. Yeah. But um you know, definitely kept you guessing as to what was you know, the whole reasoning behind the segment. And the sister with no mouth, that's kinda like okay, what kind of accident did she have? Like but as you figure out, it was really just him wishing she would shut up. I'm willing to bet. And that house was definitely a child's um, imagination wish. TV in every room. Cartoons on every TV. Same thing for dinner every night. They weren't good cartoons. <coughs> well, I'm sure that's the best they had. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Joke. 1983. Well, actually, no. There was Warner Brothers. They could have used, like, Bugs Bunny and shit. But... Kyle, what you, what are your thoughts on this segment? Yeah, I liked it. That's it? You liked it? Yeah, I talked first. So, so, okay, Justin, your thoughts? I thought this was a good... A good... A good story. Um, it It... it fits better with my idea of what the Twilight Zone was. Um, but, I mean, never having watched the show and only going yeah. off of what I know of, you know, people describing old episodes and stuff is generally they're thinkers more than, you know, modern horror, horror you know, yeah. jump scares and all that stuff. So, 
But this one, you know, this one had more, a little bit more of the, the true kind of visual horror to it. Yeah. With the, the sister's mm-hmm. mouth and then the rabbit. It's nice to see the bad guy from UHF and another thing. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but no, I, th- I thought this was a good one. Um, this is the kind of story that, you know, you could do a million ways into a movie. Yeah. You know, so. You know, that, you, know you kind of look at like, um, the boy and, um, what was another movie about the, even Children of the Corn, like, mm-hmm. you know, but his was totally different. And one thing I did like about, like, each director, each segment is so different. And it's definitely that director's taste. Mm-hmm. Like you look at an anthology like Chillerama, you know, you have four directors and each one gives their own spill on it, you know, and that that's much how like Twilight Zone was. But, you know, and then when he finally finds happiness and he's got the flowers popping up as they're driving away, like, so... All right. Our last segment, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. So the fourth segment is another remake of an episode with the same title. Um, It's directed by George Miller, and its opening narration is borrowed in part from In His Image. Um, The narrator starts with, What you're looking at could be the end of a particularly terrifying nightmare. It isn't. It's the beginning. Introducing Mr. John Valentine, air traveler, his destination, the Twilight Zone. So, nervous airline passenger, Mr. John Valentine, played by John Lithgow, is in in an airplane lavatory as he tries to recover from what seems to be a panic attack due to his anxiety over flying. The flight attendants attempt to coax Mr. Valentine from the lavatory, and they repeatedly assure him that everything's going to be all right, but his nerves and antics disturb the surrounding passengers. As he eventually takes a seat, he notices a hideous gremlin, played by Larry Cedar, on the wing of the plane and begins to spiral into another severe panic. He watches as the creature wreaks havoc on the wing, damaging the plane's engine and losing more control each time he sees it um, move about and sabotage the plane. He attempts to warn the crew and the pilot, but to no avail. Everybody just thinks he's crazy. Um, Finally, he snaps as he tries to break the window with an oxygen canister, only to be pinned down by Sky Marshal. In the chaos of the careening airplane, he manages to grab a handgun, shoots out the window, which causes a breach in the pressurized cabin and begins firing at the gremlin. This only serves to catch the attention of the gremlin, who rushes up to Valentine and promptly destroys the gun. After a tense moment, they both see the lights of the airport in the distance. The gremlin, noticing that the plane is about to leave, grabs Valentine's face and then simply scolds him by wagging its finger in his face. The creature leaps to the sky as the airplane begins its emergency landing. On the ground, as a straight-jacketed Valentine is carried off in an ambulance, the police, crew, and passengers begin to discuss the incident, writing off Valentine as insane. However, the aircraft maintenance crew soon arrives, and everybody gathers to examine the unexplained damage to the plane's engines and compare complete with claw marks from the gremlin. So, what do you guys think of this one? Interesting. Another use of a little child that torments. Yeah. Um, couldn't get over how young John Lithgow looked, you know? Yeah. Um, 
but you know, that's a common phobia flying and you think you see shit that you don't really see, but sometimes you do. Bum, bum, yeah. Bum. Yeah. Um, the air marshal, was that Clint Howard? I don't remember. Is it up here? Kind of looked like it, but I wasn't too sure because it was, you know, it, it was younger, but, um, no, it was Charles Knapp. Oh, okay. It's right up here in our cast list that you should have read before asking that question. Ha! Uh, <laughs> Got him. Okay, you did. Um, but no, interesting story, you know. Yeah. You think you have all the answers, but you really don't. Yeah, and I like kind of the escalation of it, especially because he already starts off kind of panicking, so he gets really crazy. And I love when the flight, the, the pilot's like, uh, please extinguish your cigarettes and fasten your seatbelts. Mm-hmm. And you could smoke on an airplane. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was way before your time. Well, no, I'm pretty sure well, that it was right up until before. about his time. Yeah. Yeah, 9-11. <laughs> That's so, true. You know, uh, the shoe um, bomber there. Yeah, also, yeah. But, uh, yeah. No, this was a this this was a good one, um, you know. But yeah, I mean, like it, like like I've been saying the whole time, like I kind of always pictured, you know, I always think of William Shatner with the "There's something on the wing." Then you get John Lithgow, and it's like it's just not the same. Yeah, it's not the um, same. But I mean, it's 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 a good one. I liked it. I think he's yeah. he has a different crazy, but. Crazy's pretty good. Yeah. Um, interesting. Uh, kind of a good way to end it. You know. Mm-hmm. Better than the way it started, so. Yes, yes. But that just leads into the scene reminiscent of the prologue. And Valentine is in an ambulance when the driver, Ackroyd, starts playing Clearwater Revival's Midnight Special. Driver turns and says, heard you had a big scare up there, huh? Want to see something really scary? Scene fades out to a starry night sky accompanied by Rod Serling's opening monologue from the first season of The Twilight Zone. There is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition. And it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the Twilight Zone. And then music. I did. Right. I I liked, even though I didn't like the beginning as much. I did like bringing Ackroyd back at the end. I thought that was mm-hmm. a good full circle. Yeah. Definitely, you know, good way to wrap it all around. And especially with that song, you know, Midnight Special. Yeah. And so what What did we think of this, the setting of this entire movie? You know, we're kind of all over the place in the first one. The second one, we're at our time at home. The third one, we're at this kid's dream house. And the fourth one, we're up in the air. Yeah, it's good because it, it is all over the place, which kind of separates each 
wanted to make it more distinct. Yeah. But they used it well. I mean, they they really did good, especially, you know, in the first one when he just, you know, he goes from, you know, the modern day bar to, holy crap, I'm in 1940-something France, you know? Yeah. Um, and, I mean, they, they did good in, in that. I mean, with what they had, obviously. Um, you know, they didn't put him in the middle of an actual jungle for the jungle scenes or anything like that. Yeah. But, um, no, I think they did good. And then you go into the, you know, the, um, the retirement home and, you know, it, it kind of had that cocoon feel. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, where, you know, they play it up and they, they make you feel like, you know, you're old and tired watching it. Um, so I think they did really good with that. Um, mm-hmm. The kids' house. I mean, that was it, the most it played into the whole story. Out of all of them. Yeah, and like, it played well into the story because you know yeah. it was you know it had this appearance of a normal house, and then you know you get inside, and there's a lot of aspects that are still there, but they're just off, and they're off in a way that you can't quite put your finger on, yeah. but you know that there's something there. And I think they played that well, really well with that one. So. And then the fourth one being up in the yeah, air I mean, and in the plane. Yeah. Um, it felt like the movie definitely got scarier as it as it went on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, and then all of a sudden at the end, and it's Dan Aykroyd again. Hey, you want to see something scary and playing the song? Yeah. Yeah, a great theme song, obviously. Yeah. Um, so none of us had seen this movie before. No. This was all our first times watching it. Um, <laughs> so how about, like, the, the effects of, of the movie? You know, the first one, the first two segments didn't really rely on a lot of effects as the third and the yeah. fourth one. Yeah, I did like, especially in the third one, like the rabbit and stuff was, it was actually really cool. And that that creature that he was hanging out with kind of reminded me of, um, maybe Justin, you might know this. Remember that dude that used to drive the buggy? Not the strawberry milk man, but Chucky the Trike? No, no, no. There was a cartoon character that was like a lizard or something that drove a trike. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I drink that. I don't know. But it kind of gave me that feel. Like, it looked like a frog or a lizard. You talking about the WB frog? No, not the duck. Hello, my honey. Hello, my baby. Hello, my right I almost said something else, and I'm glad I didn't take it back to Chappelle's show. But, um, but yeah. How about the, the sounds and the music of the movie? Yeah, it's good. Um, How about the length? An hour, 41 minutes? Perfect. Especially because it's it's broken up by the segments. Like, I watched half of it and then the other half, and it it doesn't really change anything. It it flew by for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I was surprised. Like, I was really getting into it. How about the horror of Twilight Zone, the movie? I mean, again, that's relative to the segment. Um, I suppose, and also relative to your thinking, um, based on the first yeah. one. Um, 
So, I mean, you know, the first two, not really. And the biggest scare there is, holy crap, I'm going to have to go back through school um, in the second one. Um, yeah. But, you know, the third one, I I I I don't want to be trapped at the whim of, you know, an eight or nine or ten-year-old's wishes and dreams. No, thanks. I live with that. No. If he, he could have their way, good Lord, life would be difficult. No, don't want to deal with that. And then, yeah. I mean, I'm not, I, I'm flying in less than a month. Um, so thankfully I don't have a fear of flying, but I can understand people who do. So yeah, I can imagine that that I honestly got it on on you, you know, I've flown all over the world, but I don't like flying. I don't like sitting on a window seat. I gotta have a window seat. I like to look out. Yeah. See the gremlin. Make friends with the gremlin. But I, you know, I get nervous during takeoff and landing because that's when shit goes wrong. This time, I might watch this movie just to watch that segment while on the flight if there's somebody here next to me that I don't want talking to me. (laughs) And just look over and be like, there's something on the wing. There's Um, something. On the wing. I can bust out my Ace Ventura. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So how about the directing and the script? Um, I definitely think each director gave their own, you know, stamp on each segment that they had. Yeah. I agree. Which kind of makes an anthology movie good. Because you're basically getting four different films. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of feel like, the Spielberg one, it, it, there was a clear difference. Like it just felt the most polished and the most, yeah, yeah, you know, refined, um, better or worse. It wasn't the best story, but it was the most, you know, polished and refined. So, I mean, it, it, it was clear that they had different people doing it. And it was nice to see, you know, different people using their, you know, their different ideas of horror. Yeah. You know, that's really what it comes down to is it's, you know, Four different takes on what they feel would be for horror. And, I don't know, the practical effects were nice. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I agree. And the cast, like, that's an all-star cast nowadays mm-hmm. of a lot of heavy It was then, too. Yeah, Dan Aykroyd, Albert Brooks, John Lithgow, um, Dick Miller, and the list goes on and on. But, all right, boys. Do we recommend Twilight Zone the movie? I mean, it's worth a watch. Yeah. Yeah, if you've never seen it, it has before, its moments. Check yeah. it out. It, you know, it's it's a horror, but it's not too scary. And there's yeah, there's something for everybody because like the yeah. like the just Spielberg bit in it too, obviously. So. Yeah, and you know, what I think it was was that. You know, that might have been something that was scary to them. But everything else isn't scary, you know. That's one thing about this movie. So, instead of our normal potential remake, sequel, reboot, cast and main characters, if you could pick four current horror movie directors to do an anthology together, who would you pick? No. Kyle, do you have any? Like, yeah, I would probably do. Uh, 
Um, I heard you Sam Raimi, um, Zach Greger, Jordan Peele, and then, um, what's his name? Robert Eggers. I, I, I wouldn't mind seeing a, um, like a Quentin Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez, Rob Zombie, Eli Roth, or Eli Roth, Adam Green, Joe Lynch, and Darren Bowsman. You know, kind of mix it up because that, you know, each movie would be different, much like the Grindhouse movies. You look at all those trailers that they came out with. They were all different movies. Hobo with a shotgun, werewolf women, uh, Thanksgiving. I just wanted to say Thanksgiving again. Um, Justin, do you have any? Uh, I know you're not. I don't know. I mean, because a lot of them, they've done them. Yeah. You know, and they've so. done, a, they do a lot of horror anthologies because, you know, horror is, it's easy to, you know, spit out a short story. That'll, you know, be conducive than it is for a long one. So, yeah, I don't know. They've done a lot of them. Well, I enjoy right. watching them. Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> you know, not always. All right, Kyle. What is your rating of Twilight Zone the movie? I'll give it a three. Justin. Yeah, three. I gave it a four. Um, it scored a 6.4 out of 10 on IMDb, a 59 out of 100 on Rotten Tomatoes, and a 3.2 out of 5 on Letterboxd. Kyle, what are we covering next week? Um, we are covering Evil Dead Rise, directed by Lee Cronin. I thought you would have said that with fucking a static, a smile on your face. Yeah, I know. I know that's what you wanted. So, okay. Well, next week, Evil Dead Rise. The bar is now closed. I don't know. I think we should talk about that. Maybe pick another movie. I don't know. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. You can stay up to date with the podcast at the Movie Bar Par on Twitter, at the Movie Bar Podcast on Instagram, and at the Movie Bar on YouTube, and at the Movie Bar Podcast on Facebook. We are on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Podcast, Anchor, Google Podcasts, and most places you listen to your podcasts. And to be sure to check out our website, www.moviebarpod.com. Thank you for listening, and please let us know what you want to hear by contacting us on social media or via email at themoviebaroutlook.com. Please like, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Goodbye. There's something on the wing. Some thing.